Hey, thank you to Helix for sponsoring this podcast. Adam has had his Helix mattress for almost a year now, and he's loving it. It's it's actually hard to get him up. In fact, he won't stop talking about it. You'll understand what we mean when he goes into detail. Thank you for the detail, Adam, later on the episode. But for now, we want to tell our listeners about a special deal going on. Our Sleepy Time Pal Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and... As if that's not enough, two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash Paula. That's helixsleep.com slash Paula. This is their best offer yet, and I'll bet it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Live from our houses in Los Angeles, California, it's Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, your comedy field guide to life. Tonight, taxes. Tax time is upon us, which means you've got to gather up your 1099 forms, pull out your Schedule A, get out your 1040, grab a pencil, and use it to commit harikari. Dr. Nicholas Duquette from the Price School of Public Policy at USC is here to answer our questions about taxation. We promise it won't be a taxing experience. Plus, quotations! We'll get to those favorite quotes we didn't have time for in the last show. As Benjamin Franklin said, promises may get thee friends, but non-performance will turn them into enemies. We don't want to be nobody's enemies, so we promise we'll deliver memorable quotations. I'm Adam Felber, the man who audits every show, trying to itemize our topics into the correct conversational category and end our broadcast on line 23 without owing the audience an incoherency penalty. And now, please welcome the woman who deducts logic from every conversational return she files, Paula Poundstone! Hey, you guys! So lovely to be here. Hey, Adam, Tony, Bonnie, and thanks to tonight's house band, trumpeter Christopher Still from the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Thank you, Christopher, for being with us. Christopher Still, we got a ringer in here tonight. Yeah, we got we're way up. We're way up in the musical hierarchy, and wow. uh, and you and you can hear it. Nice. Um, yeah, I tell you that that uh, that that intro was like a aerobic exercise for me, Paula. Take over. Was it? Yeah, it Why? was taxing. Why? I think I think Ken Lizevnik's trying to kill me. A lot of lot of oh, hard yeah. consonants in there. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that consonants could be tiring. Maybe that's oh, what's wrong I, with me all the time. <laughs> I need a I, nap. I didn't know. You know, you know what I do late at night um, is uh, I make those cameo videos that we talk about sometimes. Um, I make videos uh, that people order through cameo, uh, and I they are messages uh, from one person to another. So you know, somebody will write and say like, "Oh, uh, here's an example of one that happened recently." Somebody okay. somebody wrote wrote and said, uh, "My mother-in-law, I want you to say blah blah blah." to my mother-in-law for me, okay? And uh-huh. uh, so here's how I do it. I say the blah, blah, blah. And then usually I say, hey, this is Paula Poundstone. And, you know, it, it, Ursula was the mother-in-law's name. I say, Ursula, it's me, Paula Poundstone. And I'm talking to you on behalf of, you know, Betsy. And, uh, you know, Betsy wants you to know blah, 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 right? And then, and then I just sort of drift off and I talk. 
in the way that you might be familiar with. And uh, yes. so I, yes, I, I so I said on this one for Betsy's mother-in-law, Ursula, I said, uh, somewhere along the way, I said, oh, I have nine cats and two big dogs. And then I said, well, you know, so uh, I live alone. Maybe that's why. And then I said, well, no, really, it's probably because I, I don't like sex. And then I said, you know, uh, you know, I work so hard, <laughs> Ursula. I, if I, the idea, and this, frankly, is a joke from my act. I say, the idea that I would go into my bedroom and there'd be someone in there with whom I had to have an activity is just upsetting to me. Uh, so, you know, whatever. And then I talk a little bit more. I say, okay, Ursula, you know, love from uh, Betsy and uh, good talking to you. End of thing. So now I get a note from Betsy saying, you know, I can't use that video uh, because it is going to weird my mother-in-law out that you don't have sex. <laughs> oh, my God. Is that the strangest thing you ever? I'm like, okay, what? And this is the question that's been plaguing me. Ever since. It's literally yeah. kept me up at night. Why uh, does Ursula want me to have sex? Why is that important to Ursula? What Honestly, uh, what business is it of hers? Well, that's uh, the nerve. Uh, if I may venture an opinion, Paula Poundstone, I don't, yeah, go think, ahead. I don't think Ursula really wants you to have sex. Uh, she might she consider does. it... She might consider it unusual that you would choose to talk about that in a message from her to her mother-in-law. Well, the likelihood, uh, so we're assuming then, I mean, unless it's a same-sex couple, we're assuming that Betsy is married to Ursula's son. Well, I don't know what Ursula thinks they're doing together, but probably the same thing that Ursula did to get Betsy to begin with. So I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm broaching with mentioning sex, a fresh topic to either Betsy or Ursula. And honestly, I didn't describe sex. I said I didn't do it. It would be one thing if I talked about a penis plunging into a vagina. That's not what I said. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but then again, you did bring the whole topic up, didn't you? You know, no. (laughs) No. I said the idea that I would go into my bedroom and there'd be someone in there with whom I had to have an activity is just upsetting to me. Well, apparently, see, my guess is Ursula would have been, would have thought it was funny, but it's Betsy that had a problem with it. What if Ursula was recently widowed? That would be an incredibly depressing message. No, if Ursula was recently widowed, then we're in the same situation. Right, <laughs> except you're reminding her of the empty bedroom she comes home to every day. No, I'm showing her the glories of it. Ursula, <laughs> go to sleep. Get up. Do something fun the next day. All I don't. Right, th- well. I now you're now you're coming up with a dark background to the story. I, I don't think that was the case. You think in any you think way. Ursula just wants you to get it on with somebody? I. Why does Ursula want me to have sex? The question is pounding away at me. It's it's eating away at me. Why does Ursula want me to have sex? It's not Ursula's business. <laughs> Speaking of business, Adam. Yes. As treasurer yes. Oh, you're right. of you're our right. book it's time, club. It's time for our book club, our reading of Moby Dick. Our yeah, slow, I need, grinding sail of through the oceans. Our, our recently founded book club. Uh, and by the way, I have tweeted to John Favreau from uh, Pod Save America and Tried to invite him to join our book club. Haven't heard a word from him. 
Oh, man. But, uh, so, He's so probably just it. thinking about it. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, probably. He's probably, you know, trying to get the book to catch up. Just hasn't had time to, to respond. That's got to be it. That's um, probably it. So, uh, but I am the treasurer of the book club, and I would like to um, uh, make our my weekly report. Uh, this week, I did buy some tub toys uh, in order to perform a reenactment of the ship scenes in Moby Dick. So we are another nine ninety nine in the red, and uh, uh, I'm... I'm not happy to say that we have had no income uh, this week. Um, I know I've put Bonnie Burns on to yeah. coming up with a fundraising device uh-huh. because, yeah. you know, the pressures of being the treasurer, that and recently upsetting Ursula, have really, yeah. you know, sidelined me. Um, Bonnie, uh, how's the fundraising going? If, if Paula spent nine ninety nine on tub toys, uh, where are we with fundraising? Yeah, so I think she's, which she should know because she's a treasurer, I think she's about eleven ninety eight or something out of pocket. You know, I haven't figured out yet what the fundraiser should be. I'm still contemplating it, and I don't want to clutter up uh, what it's going to be with a lot of unnecessary thoughts. So I'm okay, but it we, we're going to need now. that money. Paula's Paula's spending this club under the te- you know out of commission. We're going to need yep. you to do something. Set up a Kickstarter or something, Bonnie. No small fortune has gone into week. the book club. A small no, fortune. I'll have it already. I'll have it by next week. All right. All right. I have All right, a so theme s- song. I have a theme song, but I don't think I have the nerve to sing it. A theme song for the book club? I do. I mean, we could put that out, but I don't well, think we could put it out because I don't think I even have the nerve to sing it. Oh, of course you do. I, huh. Sing it. No, sing. I think this is what I think it's like. You know, sometimes I get these ideas that I think are like great ideas, and then I call Paula and I go, you know, what about this? And then even as I'm telling it, I think I... You know, it must have been like I was by myself, and I thought this was a great idea. And then when I said it out loud, it's not such a great idea. And now, let so me ask you, was I'm that thinking, the theme song right there? No. Okay. The theme song might be, <laughs> I, I thought this was good, and then like, okay, I hope this isn't like when a comedian is on stage, and then like they tell a joke, and the whole audience is just like sitting there, and they don't laugh at all, okay? Okay. Here we go. Okay, I will say this. At least I came up with a theme song for the book club. Okay. Okay, here we go. Oh, I hope I don't laugh. Okay. Moby Dick is smarter than the average whale. Moby Dick is smarter than a millionaire. When you're out at sea, you will find him there, scarfing up more vessels than the average whale. Lose your leg, lose your leg, lose your leg. <laughs> well, well, that's just fantastic. <laughs> I want, I love that. Um, uh, that's <laughs> my favorite part is lose your leg. It reminds me of Uga Shaka, Uga Shaka. Lose yeah. your leg, lose your leg. It's just there's, wow. there's so many layers to it, Bonnie. I love it. I love that he's smarter than the average whale and a millionaire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, 
not quite sure what led to that non-rhyming inspiration, but it's fantastic. Yeah, I know. Yeah, there was a funny thing about the rhymes, wasn't there? But this explains (laughs) why you weren't available on the phone all week. Yeah. Uh, This must have really taken some time. Do Um, I drum up work for my client, Paula? Or do I write the theme song to the Moby Dick book club? No, but you know, so I, often... And I, I hate to be a stickler. I love that song, but it is, it's a theme song for Moby Dick, not for a book club. Oh, that's a, uh, that's a good point. You're going to have to oh, do well. a new theme We're song need every a new time song you change next the week. book. <laughs> yeah, let's come up with one for the club. <laughs> yeah, what was that? Yeah, I... um, um, yeah how about this? Uh, Eat, Pray, Fuck is a stupid book. <laughs> Lose your leg, lose your leg, lose your leg. (laughs) All right. Uh, And on that, let's turn to our discussion of today's chapters. Now, we read, we went ahead and got ambitious. We read chapters 17, uh, the Ramadan through 22, where the ship actually takes off. So, um, Paula Poundstone, this podcast is named after you. So, uh, what'd you think? Uh, well, I added a little, I read Ramadama Ding Dong, which is, <laughs> yeah, it's Ramadan with jazz hands. Um, okay. uh, so yeah, the Ramadan thing was that he was, Queequeg was in his in room and, uh, Ishmael, you know, can't stir him. And they eventually, they, I don't think they broke the door down, did they? Eventually, maybe they got a key and went in. And No, they, and they busted just, in. Oh, did they? And, he, and, and it turns out that Queequeg uh, uh, was worshiping. He was in sort of a worshiping trance, and he just wasn't going to get up and get the door. Um, uh, you know, so take away the worshiping part, and it's probably like lots and lots of partners. Uh, just, <laughs> you know. When my kids lived at home, how many times did I have to say, someone's at the door? And no one was, like, (laughs) apparently I'm the only one who can get the door. Uh, I didn't realize that they were um, participating in Ramadan at the time. Uh, And then after that, after the Ramadan chapter, was that the one where, uh, oh, they meet Elijah, I think? They go to the- They meet Elijah, who's clearly a crazy man who's got some- prophecies he wants to say about what's going to happen on the Pequod, but doesn't quite say it. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of, you know, foreshadowing that something weird is going to happen on the, on the Pequod. And then, um, again, keeping up with the religious, uh, theme, um, Elijah, who they don't know what to make of Elijah. He's just a weird guy they bump into on the street. And then he hides the, off the Coleman and does he? they have to go look for it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I must have I... just kind of glazed over during that part of that chapter. Yeah, yeah, that happens. Um, and then at one point, Ishmael, maybe in the next chapter when he's talking about when they're boarding the ship and the ship's been loaded and everything, um, there's this great quote where he says, when a man suspects any wrong, it sometimes happens that if he be already involved in the matter, he insensibly strives to cover up his suspicions, even from himself. 
and you know, I listened to the audio version of the book, and right at that point, you could just hear Mike Pence wailing in the background of the recording. <laughs> I had the same thought. <laughs> it's absolutely that sort of like I that that's Mike Pence and I guess many other Republicans managed to willfully blind themselves to stuff. Um, <laughs> they're, no, Mike they're, Pence is yeah. all throughout Moby Dick. Uh, that he really you know, uh, Melville was so prescient. Uh, he has Mike Pence in here over and over again. When a man suspects any wrong, it sometimes happens that if he be already involved in the matter, he insensibly strives to cover up his suspicions, even from himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then the next thing you know, the, the guy you work for dispatches a mob to murder you on Capitol Hill. Yeah. Yeah. So the new copies of Moby Dick, instead of having a picture of uh, um, Ahab and the whale on the cover, have the mob and the noose um, <laughs> on the cover. It actually wow. uses the capital. That is some um, trenchant analysis, uh, Paula Poundstone. Yeah. So that's that's what I got. What about you guys? Uh, uh, let's go to Sherman Oaks and Tony Anita Hall for her close and incisive reading of the text. Yeah, so we're I, 22 chapters in, and we haven't even met Captain Ahab yet. There have been chapters about all, every meal, but yeah. still no <laughs> Captain Ahab? I got to tell you, Tony, I'm... I'm kind of liking the fact we haven't met him yet. It's building up this tension because there, you know, remember they're still saying uh, last week I was pointing out that there's there was this long speech that they were rationalizing. They, you know, I'm sure it'll be fine. And now there's been this one more reference from the owner of the boat as they're setting out to sea, and he's like, "Oh, I'm sure he'll he'll come out as soon as the sun emerges, and that'll do him a world of good." <laughs> I yeah, mean, it's, it, it's it's like he's getting better all the time. Oh, yeah, don't you worry about a thing. Just go out there. He'll be as right as rain. Yeah, I I, I can't do it. So you're missing that we haven't met Captain Ahab yet? Yeah. <laughs> well, does does this make you feel better? I I, I listened to the whole book already. He's coming. <laughs> Let, uh, unless you have something else, Tony, we can, uh, we'll go up to Simi Valley. <laughs> Bonnie Burns. Well, you know Melville has this sense of humor, it really made me laugh when they're trying to get a Quig Quig, you know, out of the room and they think that he's dead and the landlady said, paint a sign, no suicides permitted here and no smoking in the parlor. I love that yeah. line. And no, she, she tags it too. She tags the joke. She says, no smoking in the parlor and then says something like, you might as well kill two birds with one stone. <laughs> oh yeah, right. Yeah. And then the... Yeah. I I'd already heard is. that from one of Tom Bodette's Motel 6 commercials. So that didn't, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I just saw Melville ripping off Tom Bodette. And then the, um, whatever those guys' names that have the ship, you know, they, 
they get the contract signed. Oh, oh right. The two. Okay, yes. Got you. Bledad and whatever his name yeah. was. The recruiters, they, right. The yeah, recruiters. The owners. The and then owners. they keep calling um, Quig Quig Hedgehog and Quahog. Quahog, which is, which is a clam from that region. Oh, Quahog. Oh, it is? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. And then I looked up Humbug and what was it? Uh, he was nothing but a humbug trying to be a bugbear. I had to look that up, but I thought it was a great sentence. Did you guys know what that was? No. Well, humbug, isn't that like Dickens, uh, just something that's not real? Imposter. Yeah, yeah. Hum, uh, yeah. Oh. It's a, I didn't know that. I'll have to put that in the imposter. word, in the vocabulary uh, song. It's, it's lies and nonsense is the bah humbug thing, as, as I always t- took it at least. And then what about the bugbear? What's a bugbear? Isn't it a big mythical a monst- animal or something? Yeah. Yeah, I, in the sense, it, uh, an imposter trying to be a monster. So, oh, that's great. I just, I breezed right by that. Bonnie, you, uh, you've been doing your homework. Yeah. Writing theme songs and, and taking names. Hey. Um, all, all I want to add to all this from my perspective before we get to whatever Ken, uh, Ken Lezebnik has to say about it is that, number one, it's kind of interesting because I think Ishmael might be an atheist, which is kind of awesome. Um, basically saying that Queequeg's religion is no more or less ridiculous than any of them. Um, but also, he's such a drama queen. I love I, I love the <laughs> giant freak out that he pulls just because Queequeg won't open the door. He's, he's screaming like, stroke, get a doctor. Apoplectic fit. He's he's literally screaming and jumping and running around, and it's 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 really funny to, that he like Jewish mother wise. He just goes from zero to he's dead in a crash in ten seconds. And yet he's going to be a whaler. I know he's going to panic. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know what? Let's get to uh, book club president Ken Lazebnik and his opinions because he sent us an email with this update. <laughs> um, wait, I'm president. How did that happen? Well, your president is in Brooklyn looking at the New York Harbor and breathing fresh air. Ishmael told us he goes to sea as a sailor because, quote, of the wholesome exercise and pure air of the forecastle deck. In this world, headwinds are far more prevalent than winds from astern. That is, if you never violate the Pythagorean maxim. What is he saying here, asked Ken? The Pythagorean injunction is to avoid eating beans, which causes flatulence. Really, that's what that really refers to. As we find out week after week, Moby Dick shies away from no part of the human experience. I did notice the uh, fart joke in chapter one. Yes, and you Uh, mentioned it in chapter one weeks ago when we were covering chapter one. Yeah, you know, Ken just keeps saying he's in Brooklyn. Well, that's pretty funny. Because uh, uh, he's just been spotted um, in San Antonio, Texas. So I don't really see how the Brooklyn thing. Yeah, he's in San Antonio, Texas, and he's he's not making a lot of headway in Moby Dick. Maybe he's just really fascinated with that first chapter, but he, he does seem to be punting it downfield. Yeah. Speaking of punting... Paula, I'm going to fall back five yards and ask if you're ready to bring out a vocabulary word. I have a word, Adam. It's ubiquitous. It's oh. an adjective that means and it means present, appearing, or found everywhere. Uh, 
you know, I'd, I'd heard the word ubiquitous many, many times, but honestly, I never knew what it meant. So here I'll use it in a sentence. The, the corner bar is ubiquitous in Milwaukee. Uh, Adam, answer, answer the phone. What? <laughs> answer, answer the phone. I, I, all right, the contest is over. Still getting calls, huh? Okay. Hello? Hi, Adam. It's me, Fairbanks Elementary School second grade teacher, Miss Nancy. I would like to perform this week's vocabulary song. (laughs) Miss Nancy, (laughs) how nice to hear from you. Um, How's the distance learning teaching going? Oh, Adam, it is not easy. I I want people to wear their masks and stay away from crowds so we can defeat this virus and get kids back in the classroom where they belong. It's so hard to teach second graders online. And instead of playing Duck, Duck, Goose, we play a game called Just Sit There and Don't Worry About the Fucking Goose. Wow, you, (laughs) you play that game with that name with second graders. No, I, I threw in the fucking because it's a podcast. <laughs> well, thank you for that. <laughs> and uh, I always admire a second grade freedom, teacher's willing you know to use what her I first mean? name. I felt, f- I felt free because it's a podcast. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad that we were able to help you feel that sense of freedom. Um, all right, Miss Nancy. I, I don't see any reason not, if it's, okay, if it's all right with Paula Poundstone, I don't see any reason not to let you sing the vocabulary song. Oh, absolutely. Go ahead, Miss Nancy. Thank you very much. All right, here goes. <laughs> this week's word is ubiquitous. It's an adjective that means present, appearing, or found everywhere. So many men are growing facial hair. Last week's word was obstreperous. It's an adjective that means noisy and difficult to control. Mo won't stop barking at people when they stroll. The week before that, the word was evanescent. It's an adjective that means... um. I had it a minute ago. I can almost see it. Smells like Evan. No, that's not it. Oh, go quickly fading from sight, memory, or existence, like crews reflecting on the time they tried to kill Pence. Going back before that, we had rictus. It's a noun that means a fixed grimace or grin. I'm happy for the best actress, even though I didn't win. And not long ago, we had decoction. It's a noun that means the action or process of extracting the essence of something. An important part of natural healing. Let's never forget Gallimaufry, which Paula pronounced wrong until nobody James Haida corrected her. It's a noun that means confused jumble or medley of things. Hodgepodge, who's podge, hodgepodge. Adam doesn't think the song is replicable, 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 but I do, I do, I do. Paula does, Paula does, Paula does too. (laughs) Miss Nancy. That was really well done, Miss Nancy. Um, Yeah. Oh, Miss Nancy, that was great. Thank you so much. I, I think you're better at the vocabulary song than I am, if you can believe that. And I guess you've proved, you've proved me wrong. It was fun to do, but I was really, really nervous because I know there's a, Paula has set such a high bar. I know, but I want to say, uh, Miss Nancy, you, you hit both notes. Uh, oh, thank you, Adam. 
coming from you. That is high praise. <laughs> yeah, there are two notes in that song, and you hit them both. And you also proved me wrong because um, you proved that the song is replicable because there you just replicated it, Paula's song, um, perfectly. Oh, we sing it in my distance learning second grade class all the time. I'm sure they love the bit about Putinesca. Well, thanks so much, Miss Nancy, for calling in. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was good talking to you. I gotta go. I got. I gotta right. go. I gotta put myself right. in. Thanks, Miss Nancy. In, uh, a gallery view. I gotta be in gallery view. Why? Thank you. Why can't I hang out with bye her bye. after the game? Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. Coming up, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. said, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye, Miss Nancy. You later. <laughs> I, I'm bye. hanging up the phone now. <laughs> All right, you do that. That's going to disconnect us. Go ahead. I, I would hope. Click. Coming up, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. said, Bye-bye. I like to pay- Bye-bye. Oh, I don't Christ. think your bye. phone is working. Bye-bye. I guess not. Okay. Okay. Bye now. Coming up, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. said, I like to pay taxes. With them, I buy civilization. We'll hear about the role of taxes in all our lives. That's next on Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. Bye, Miss Nancy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> I th- there's something wrong with your phone, Adam. I'm sure there is. <laughs> Hey, Paula, it's been almost a year now since I got my Helix mattress. And as you remember, there was some drama surrounding Helix mattresses. Because oh, when oh Helix gosh. first sponsored us, Bonnie took the mattress and yeah. she's been loving it. But finally, I got my chance to get a Helix mattress and I sleep so well. I mean, the family bed is where we all gather. We watch movies in, in our room occasionally and everybody just piles on it and it it's comfy. And yet when one person hops on, the other half of the mattress doesn't fly up. I'm a fan. Well, you know, Adam, everybody is unique and everyone sleeps differently. That's why Helix has several different mattress models to choose from, each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. Models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side. Models with a more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions plus enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating at night. And if your spine needs some extra TLC, they got you. Every Helix mattress has a hybrid design combining individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. It is the perfect combination of comfort and support. I agree with that last bit. I don't get all the technical stuff about the mattress, but it is soft and supportive. Helix offers 20 unique mattresses, the award-winning Lux, which I got, and ultra-premium Elite Collections, the Helix Plus, a mattress designed for big and tall sleepers, and the Helix Kids mattress designed for growing bodies and endorsed by child sleep experts, and my daughter now wants one. So, how will you know which Helix mattress works best for you and your body? You go to their website, take the Helix Sleep Quiz, and you find your perfect mattress batch in under two minutes. You know, when you said you can't follow all the technical stuff, it's really not that technical. You know, uh, no matter what way you sleep, they have a mattress that will support and comfort you. How hard is that? Uh, You know, when you say it that way, it seems a lot simpler. I take it back. That's my boner. And your personalized mattress is shipped straight to your door, free of charge. And Helix knows there's no better way to test out a new mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. That's why they offer a 100-night trial and a 10- to 15-year warranty to try out your new Helix mattress. 
Well, I like that there's a warranty, but they can pry that mattress from my cold, dead hands. I took the sleep quiz. I was matched with the Helix Midnight Lux. I got the Lux, and I love it. It is such an upgrade from my old mattress. You know, I think Bonnie got the Midnight Lux. She did. Too. Yeah. You're not here. (laughs) (laughs) Don't want to take Adam's word for it? Well, you got Bonnie's word. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It's even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Your Sleepy Time Pal Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. That's a lot, and it's already not that expensive a mattress. Go to helixsleep.com slash Paula. That's helixsleep.com slash Paula. This is their best offer yet. It's fantastic. It won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Well, not right now. And if you're going to get it anyway, use our code. Hey, Paula. You know, every once in a while, we get a new advertiser that I get super excited about. And I have to say, just because of the circumstances of my life right now, I'm really excited about our new advertiser, Quince of Quince.com, the clothing provider. Not to be mistaken for Quince from Midsummer Night's Dream. And let me just say this, and maybe it's not important to an advertisement, but when I was in the fourth grade, our class put on a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Okay. And I played I played Peter Quince. There. There's the connection. One of the mechanicals. That's a great connection. Also, yes, has nothing to do with this, which is that um, Quince is an online clothing store. And as you know, Paula, I've, uh, I've lost a little weight lately. Oh, right. 75 pounds. Yeah. So I literally have no clothes that are in my size until I just ordered some stuff at Quince. And I figured, like, here's a chance for me to create a new look for myself. A whole new image. And how's it going? Not bad. I mean, the clothes are fantastic. I know that you ordered some too. What I got is I got yes. the Comfort Stretch Traveler five pocket pants. And I got oh. the, um, oh, it's so, and I got the 100% European linen shirt and it looks breezy and it fits beautifully. And these are like premium pieces of clothing that are selling for like, you know, $30 a piece or starting at $30 at quince.com. It's awesome. I look good. I ordered the brushed lounge jogger and you know i put them on when i came back from new york i pulled them on and i i swear to you okay this is not scientific because i was tired already right but they were so soft (laughs) and and so comfortable that honestly like right as i got them up to my waist i i I think my eyes closed they're so it's a softness it's a kind of softness that I don't think I've ever experienced in a garment, honestly. You know, my uh, drawstring European linen trousers are a little bit like that, too. Like, so comfortable that I just want to hang out with myself. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And they're European. Keep that in mind. Uh, oh, European. they are so European. And you can get those kind of, you can get washable silk tops. You can get uh, 14 karat gold jewelry and like all these accessories. Quince sells a lineup of timeless pieces that keep their customers looking effortlessly chic year after year. I'm not certain that I look chic, but certainly if I did, it's not going to take a lot of effort. I now look chic and I feel pretty great. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabric. It's all good as far as I can see. Is it my imagination or do they cut out the middleman? 
They cut out the middleman, Paula Poundstone. I love it when they cut out the middleman. That's the thing. They cut out the middleman. <laughs> That's fantastic. So be like me and Paula. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash nobody for free shipping on your order and a 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash nobody to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash nobody. And honestly, I look fantastic. Paula, you won't be able to keep your hands off me. Oh, I can't wait. And don't <laughs> think that if you had to return something, don't think you're sending it to a middleman because they cut out the middleman. They man. cut out the middleman. That's quince.com slash nobody. And if you're going to do it anyway, use our code. On this day in unremarkable history, King George said, no, no, let him have it. I'm playing the long game. <laughs> Thank you, house band Christopher, still classing up the joint for us on the trumpet. Paula, it is tax time again. Who oh boy. You know, I, I, I'm not so good at the tax. I mean, I actually like paying taxes, by the way, because do I want to have... Yes, because I want to do my share. Um, but... Determining what my share is is not my strength. So you you don't do your own taxes, have you ever? No, I, uh, no, I never have. Um, I can tabulate the tip in a restaurant, but you don't need to do that anymore. That's true. That's true, and completely unrelated. Oh uh, well, we are fortunate to have an expert on taxation and the history of taxes right here with us, Doctor Nicholas Duquette is an economist at USC's Saul Price School of Public Policy. His research is in public finance and economic history, with particular interest in the historical development of taxation and spending policy and the private nonprofit sector. Please welcome returning champion Nicholas Duquette! Thank you. Hey, welcome back. Nicholas, thanks so much for being here. Um, <laughs> Thank you for having me. All right, so... What is the history of taxation? I know from the Disney animated version of Robin Hood that it was a process quite cruel to the church mice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, it, and it often can still feel that way uh, if, you, you know, if you don't get your papers in order. Um, well, the... Usually when we, we talk about the, you know, tax season, of course, we're talking about filing your income tax return, which is now the main way that we pay taxes to the federal government. But, uh, you know, for a long time, that wasn't actually even a thing in the U.S. Um, so uh, up until a little over 100 years ago, the main uh, taxes that we paid to the federal government were either uh, on imported goods, so stuff coming in, uh, you know, they, they had a, a whole, they got really upset about taxation without representation and threw all the tea off the ships. And then, uh, they got the representation and then just kept taxing, you know, kept the taxation part pretty much like that. So stuff coming in. So what or, was that? Um, so wait, when you say yeah. stuff coming in, so if you like say, that, so they bring tea in from someplace else. And does that mean that the people on the ship who had the tea had to pay taxes? Does that mean that the people who bought the tea, like uh, like a cup of tea, they had to pay? Who was paying taxes on That's the right. tea? Uh, so in order to bring it into choice. the United States, 
You can't. Well, I, I don't know how long you've been a professor, but you can't say that's right to a multiple choice. Well, in a way, it's both. Uh, in order to bring the tea into the U.S. or whatever else they were trying to bring in, mm-hmm. uh, they would have to get a little stamp or other cert- certificate showing that the tax had been paid. So the, the oh, person importing it would pay the tax, and then you know they, it would, they would charge more for the tea at the tea store in order to make the money back. So you know the taxes would wind up getting paid by uh, both sides, you know, effectively. But if mm-hmm. you wanted to bring tea in, you had to pay the tea tax or the you know, the molasses tax or whatever. Were whatever they it is big taxes? Because it seems, it seems like overthrowing the, the reigning government over a, a slightly more expensive tea is, a, is a somewhat extreme. I don't want to call our founding fathers a bunch <laughs> of hotheads, but that seems, that seems rash. Well, uh, they really liked tea. I mean, remember, it was a British colony, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, you know what it was? It was the, the Lipton family were just hotheads. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and the Celestial Seasoning family? Oh, my God. They were seditionists. <laughs> oh, the seasonings, yes. Mm-hmm. They were, yes, they were. They, they passed the Tea Act. Okay, so they started out taxing that way. That's and right. And then why did they change? Uh, and, and how did it change where you were, where you were yeah. filling out forms and stuff? That's right. Well, they, they were, so they were charging if you wanted to bring stuff in and then, mm-hmm. uh, that wasn't enough money, you know, cause it was just tea and, and things like that. So then they also started to have excise taxes on certain things that were made domestically, uh, mostly alcohol and tobacco. So the and two big things- what does excise mean? Uh, it, it just means it's a tax on stuff. So, mm-hmm. uh, like a sales tax, but usually more targeted than that. So there'd be the alcohol tax, there'd be a tobacco tax, there was a... Is that sometimes called a sin tax, or is a sin tax just some form of an excise tax? It's like a, uh, an excise tax that's more judgmental. So, uh-huh. yeah. uh, you know, you can have an excise tax on something that you don't think is particularly bad, but when we tax alcohol or tobacco, you know, we're, that's... We, we can call mm-hmm. that a sin tax because uh, we're trying to make you feel bad about the fact that we're taking your money to pay for stuff when you buy it. Yeah, half of Fritos is tax. People don't realize it. <laughs> but they're worth it. <laughs> I, more than worth it, yeah. Um, all right, so so then they did the excise taxes, yeah. and, and then and then what after that? How did so, we get to this once a year thing? So what the big turning point was, they needed two things. First, they needed a constitutional amendment that said the federal government could have a income tax because it had been attempted a couple times in the 1800s and thrown out. So uh, in the early in the 19 teens, that amendment passes and it now becomes possible. Then the other big thing that happens is prohibition because one of their big taxes was taxing alcohol, and you can't tax something when you've completely you know banned it entirely. So uh, oh yeah, they were get, getting ready to go into World War One, and they realized oh my gosh nobody is le- drinking the stuff legally anymore. We can't tax it, and so that was really the turning point where the federal income tax became a big deal, and it has been ever since. You know, I had no idea. I thought it was always that way. Uh, it's you been know. just over 100 years. Oh. So why why is it so complicated? Why isn't there just a number? You know, why, why can't you just add up the shit you made <laughs> and take a percentage and give it to the government? What's with all the... The what do they call you know the mm, itemizations and deductions and, and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the schedule. What the hell is schedule? What does that have to do with it? 
Why do they call it schedule? Um, well, that's I mean, a lot it's... of questions. <laughs> Go ahead, pick, pick, pick whatever you want to answer. Pick two or three of those questions and answer them. I, I don't actually know why they call them a schedule. Maybe because they take a little time to finish. I'm going to go back to the first question because I, okay. I think I can answer that one. What was uh, the first question? Was that? Much. Was it, was <laughs> why the first is it so question? complicated? Oh, okay. uh, I think I think that was the question. Yeah. Um, so you know, every time you have a tax, you're doing two things: you're you're bringing money into the government to pay for stuff, but then you're also creating some kind of incentive, and you're making judgments about who is going to actually pay for that stuff, and so. The, the rules keep getting tweaked and made more complicated, uh, largely because we want to make sure that we don't create incentives to do weird stuff and we don't uh, try to uh, arrange the system of who is paying for what in a way that is we that we think is unfair. So all we of already did extra, that though, didn't we? Uh, with the when we threw the tea off the ship. No, I don't know when it happened, but I don't feel like taxes are fairly you know fairly distributed well i don't know if they are fairly distributed but that's usually where these rule changes come from they look at something that is going on and go hold on that's a, a loophole and that's unfair or mm -hmm. these people are paying too much for their ability to pay and they deserve a tax break okay got you yeah. and when you mentioned incentives earlier are mm -hmm. there incentives to pay taxes Oh, well, I mean, if you don't pay taxes, you can get in trouble and then they can come fine you and make you pay even more than you originally owed. But uh, I meant more like incentives to not pay taxes. So, Oh, I see. Yeah, doing stuff to get out of having to pay it. And then, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you create these weird things where everybody, uh, you know, you used to be a person who had an Etsy store and now you're a corporation that has an Etsy store and you're still making the same, you know, Doilies? I don't actually know what sure. people put in their Etsy stores. Right, doilies. Yeah. They have a doily Do business. Doilies. It's, it's mostly doilies. Yeah, and then you become a doily corporation to get the you know a different rate. But you're doing the same thing. So you know these uh, sorts of incentives can lead people to doing stuff that is you know extra work and doesn't really contribute anything, uh, or it it can be incentives that we think are good. So uh, like a sin tax, if you tax or, in, or, then um, there's less sinning. Like like a child tax credit or a child care credit or things that we that we think are good in society, we, we give people tax breaks for them, right? Right. Uh, you know, that's a way of saying that we think that, you know, taking care of children is good and, uh, you know, trying to give people a little bit of a break because child care is expensive compared to people who don't have those costs. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you something, Nicholas. Try living a life without doilies. You, 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 <laughs> I think... I think we should have the the doily uh, uh, tax credit. Uh, I think, in fact, anything on Etsy should, should <laughs> anybody selling on Etsy should just get a free ride. That's my feeling uh, because <laughs> you love try, crafts. Try living a life without crafts. It can't be done. It's a colorless world. <laughs> I, I live a craft-free existence. Oh, jeez. Um, all right. So, so it got complicated. And That's right. when did we first notice um, people coming up with the loopholes and the advantages that, you know, the kinds of things that made um, Buffett say to his assistant that he, she paid higher taxes than he did? And I mean, not the, I don't mean Margaritaville. I mean, the other Buffett. <laughs> Jimmy Buffett doesn't pay a lot of taxes either. 
I've right. told you this before, but I did when I first heard Buffett was like the richest person in, in the world at some point. I don't think he is anymore. But when I, I did think it was Jimmy Buffett. Well, Jimmy Buffett, I, you know, a lot of people don't realize that there's an entire Jimmy Buffett subculture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that now. But um, anyway, sorry. To, I, I, I digress. Are you, are, you, are you a parrot head, Nicholas? I, I've heard, I can name probably three of his songs, I think. That, is that uh, enough? Not to be a parrot head, no. Okay. No. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, there's Margaritaville, and uh, yes. I wrote this song in international waters, so I don't have to pay tax on it, and uh, the one about the cheeseburgers. <laughs> Cheeseburger in paradise, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, those, those are the hits, yeah. Um, all right, wait. So, <laughs> when did the kinds of things that make it true for Buffett, non-beak Buffett, to say um, to his assistant, uh, she pays higher taxes than he does. When did that start happening? Well, there's always been this dance between uh, you know, the reforming the tax law and then uh, people finding loopholes or lobbying to get loopholes added to it and then taking advantage of that. And then uh, sooner or later, another reform wave comes around and they they change a lot of stuff. And then that always has unintended consequences that some clever lawyer starts to find. So it, it's a little bit of a mix of the the story where, you know, people are lobbying and, and using their position of influence to get favors and just stumbling on uh, stuff that w- maybe wasn't intended to be that way. Kind um, of a whack-a-mole thing? It, it is a whack-a-mole thing. So, uh, for example, right now there is a big movement uh, to increase tax rates on people who are very high income. And mm-hmm. people will point out that, uh, decades ago, the highest tax rate on income was as high as 90%. But the the other thing that happened over that time is while the rates were going down, they closed a lot of the loopholes for exactly the types of things that you're talking about. I mean, Warren Buffett still uh, has his, which I think is a uh, special thing where you can uh, you know, treat your – it has to do with the fact that as long as he doesn't sell any shares in his company, he doesn't have to pay tax. But uh, you know, those, those 90% tax rates, hardly anybody – ever actually wound up paying them because there were so many legal ways to reduce your taxable income uh, that uh, I I think it was said that in the 1930s when Franklin Roosevelt introduced those high rates for the first time, the only person who actually paid them was John D. Rockefeller because he was just so rich that... uh, He didn't notice. Yeah. (laughs) So that's that's where the concept effective tax rate comes in, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there is your... Uh, tax rate that you actually pay, and then there's the the rate that's on the schedule. But if you can wind up finding ways to, you know, uh, take advantage of all of these different uh, advantages that are in the code that provide the, you know, incentive for this and an incentive other than that, then you can have a substantial reduction in what you actually have to pay. I gotta and that's find intentional. those. I gotta find those. <laughs> um, all right, why don't we? Um, uh. Adam, what did Will Rogers say? <laughs> okay, I thought, I thought that's where you were going. Will Rogers said, the only difference between death and taxes is death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. Stay tuned to find out more about taxes and if they can ever get better. The Cat of the Week is Smoochie from Highland Park, New Jersey.
And we're back with economist Dr. Nicholas Duquette. Paula? All right, so, Nicholas, I can't do my own taxes because I file in so many states every year, except for this year. And this year I'm making no money in any state, but I think I I pay some sort of penalty for that as well. Um, Would it be cheaper for me to just do it myself incorrectly? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are two ways that doing it yourself might wind up costing you money. Uh, The first is that you might overlook a uh, something that you are able to deduct or claim as a credit and uh, pay tax that you don't have to and overpay unintentionally. Um, and, and, you know, the IRS will actually inspect your return. And if you, you know, make a mistake that they can see, they'll say, you know, we think you overpaid and here's the difference. But uh, a, well, a famous study found that about 7% of returns that were audited actually overpaid taxes and they wound up owing less. So... Seven percent. Seven Sorry. Seven. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, I lo- I I like the. Uh, then I'm just gonna go outside the IRS building and chant audit audit <laughs> and see if I can get a little something back. Now you know I have to obviously sign the tax return, um, and and I look at the numbers and I do it in front of my accountants, like so they can see that I'm looking at the numbers. So they're not pulling anything. <laughs> But I don't really think I'm fooling anybody. They know I don't know what I'm looking at. Uh, So, but they have used, because I, you know, the first time I ever had these particular accountants do my stuff, which was many, many years ago, like, I don't know, 30, 35 years ago, maybe. um, I said, I said to the guy right off the bat, I said, look, I want to pay taxes. I don't want, I want to pay taxes. It's important. I feel good about doing that. Um, and, and he, I remember he said to me, he said, well, you know, uh, you know, we're not too aggressive, you know, and, and they, and they've used that word a number of times with me, you know, oh, we're not going to be too aggressive, which, which suggests to me that there's a style of doing taxes as opposed to like a hard, (laughs) fast rule. Am I right about that? Absolutely. Well, so much of what you do is open to interpretation. Well, I, I shouldn't say so much of what you do, because uh, for a lot of people doing, there is no room for aggression. Uh, you know, a typical tax filer, you get a W-2 and you get a little thing that says how much you paid in like student loan interest. And then maybe you claim the child tax credit and that's it. It's like two mm-hmm. pages and you've got to add four things. And it really is not that complicated to just do it yourself. But other things aren't like that. Uh, it's not just a dollar amount that somebody hands you and you go off and uh, punch the calculator until it gives up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so say, for example, that you, you know, I studied charitable donations. Say you donate some, uh, like some, a shirt to a thrift store. You are allowed to deduct the fair market value of that shirt, but who's to say what a shirt is really worth? Uh, you know, it's more than zero and it's probably less than $1,000, at least, you know, my shirts are, but... There's some range of numbers that you could say, yeah, that shirt was worth, uh, you know, if you if you said that shirt was worth $2, that probably wouldn't be very aggressive. If you said it was worth, you know, $50, uh, the accountant might say, getting a little aggressive with the, you know, what you said that shirt was worth. But I think that that depends, Nicholas, on whether or not it's a it's a remarkably soft tri-poly blend shirt <laughs> with uh, and, uh, self-portrait think, on the left breast. 
and a memorable quote on the back, which- I think the um, IRS is aware that tripoly isn't a thing, Paula. No, that's, oh no. In fact, the IRS has come to me and said, could we get some of your shirts? <laughs> um, so huh. I, feel, I feel good about that. Um, all right. Uh, uh, all right, so how does, how does the IRS work? I mean, I think of it as this sort of, you know, big, uh, you know, whale of a building um, with, you know, thousands of worker bees in there that are that are trying to catch people. That's how I think of the IRS. Um, how many people work there? How do they find cheats? And how many bees? <laughs> well, the ex- exact way that they decide who's going to get audited uh, every year is actually a very closely guarded secret because... Oh no, uh, it isn't. I uh, the guy the guy who asked me for my shirts. I said, "Then tell me how you decide who gets audited." And he is a guy named Ed, by the way, uh, who works at the IRS. <laughs> and he said, uh, "Eeny, meeny, miny, mo." <laughs> and so I'm good. So that's how they do it. I didn't know you didn't know, or I would have told you right off the bat. I feel terrible keeping secrets. Yeah, any mini well, mini mo. <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of refocus this question though and say, uh, do 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 we know? We we really don't know, uh, and they they very purposefully don't tell us because if they said here's the rule we use to decide who gets audited, then you know people will look at would look at that rule and say, I, well I can go up to this amount without them coming after me, uh, and so they they want to keep it ambiguous so that you're not exactly sure what they're going to do. But, um, uh, you know, there are certain things that we know increase the chances that they're going to, they are going to audit you. If you have things on your tax return that are very hard to uh, be precise about or that are very easy to get aggressive about, uh, for example, if you have income as a small business, that can be very open to more or less aggressive interpretations about exactly what you did. Those are the kind of people who are likely to get audited. Um you know, like if your tax return looks like what we all think Donald Trump's looks like, where you report hundreds of millions of dollars and then say you owe zero dollars, we know that that's somebody who's going to get audited. Uh, but it's the people who are in between that uh, who are you know, more ambiguous. Would you say that um, one of the things that might, um, you know, make them take a second look is a lot of crossouts? <laughs> <laughs> Because that's, uh, you know, because I uh, when I look over what my accountants do, I say to them, could you white this out instead of crossing it out? Because I think this is going to attract unnecessary attention. Um, why- yeah, and you know what I did, Paula, which, which, which I regret because it's definitely what I think led to my audit is like when I listed all these deductions after several of the uh, dollar amounts, I wrote, yeah, that's it. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. That and emojis. Don't use emojis. <laughs> I just want to caution people right now. Um, okay, Trump kept saying he couldn't show his taxes because he was under audit, and it turns out there's no such rule. Um, uh, but in fact, because uh, some people kept saying, well, how could you be under audit for, for that long? But apparently he has been under audit for like 10 years. Um, is the IRS understaffed? Very understaffed. The number of returns they can audit has been going down every year for a long time. Uh, and that's because their budget keeps getting cut. Uh, it's a, because nobody likes them. Right. They're the people who make you pay your taxes. So, uh, 
it, for you know people who don't really think about what their role is in the system, it it sounds like a tax cut to hear that the IRS is you know they're they're losing their jobs too. Yeah, let's get them. But they're the people who make sure that everybody else is more or less playing by the rules. And so if we don't have enough auditors, you're more likely to be able to you know sneak something by them without it getting caught. It's kind of like when. Uh, Trump was saying that we wouldn't have so many COVID cases if we would just stop doing all of these tests. You know, no. it's, was te- technically, you know, there wouldn't have been as many confirmed cases if we didn't test so much. But it, it, you know, the the looking for it isn't the same thing as the actual problem. So if you're yeah. an average Joe or average Jane, who the kind of person you described who pays off a W-2 and not much else, it's really in, in their best interest for the IRS to have lots of people auditing. Absolutely. Uh, you know, that can increase your confidence that everybody else is paying what they're supposed to pay. And so people like Paula who like paying taxes and having public services can feel happy knowing that, you know, even people who aren't so positive about it are still playing by the same rules. I don't want my taxes to be misused. Um, It kills me that my taxes, you know, have been used to uh, put children in cages, right? But I do want to do my share. In fact, I have a great idea now that we're talking about that they don't have enough staffing at the IRS. You know how you can adopt a highway? What if on your tax return form, there was a question, do you want to adopt an IRS uh, guy <laughs> or, or woman? Yeah. Do you want, like, do you want to, I would do that. I would supply an auditor. You would subsidize the IRS basically. I yeah, I just think it's kind of a beautiful story when you do it that way. You know, it's like <laughs> you get a picture. You get a picture of, a, of of the accountant you adopted every month, and it was a little progress report on yeah, how he's doing. And, and they yeah. write you a letter. Uh, they, uh, Dear they, Paula, oh, every every so often they write you a letter, and at holidays they write you a letter. I think that would be so great. It would really humanize the the IRS in a in a big way too. Oh oh oh! You know, my auditor loves to be scritched. Just under his jawbone. <laughs> now I feel like we've gone somewhere else with this now. Um, well, now it's like a, one of those things where you're, um, you know, where you're you're adopting a, a, an animal, but yes. you're not actually. Yeah, that, yeah. Because my auditor does. They love to be scratched just under uh, the jawbone. And, I think a uh, lot of auditors do. Yeah, and after that, they can see that graft. Whoo, boy, can they spot con work. <laughs> Um, so is there something that one should do when you get audited? Like, do you go with your tax preparer? Do you not, are you, are you allowed to not go and just send the tax preparer? Is there, are there rules to getting audited? Well, they, I mean, so you're supposed to keep all of your papers from the tax return, your past few tax returns in a folder somewhere. And then if you get audited, you got to pull them out and go through it together. I've never personally been audited, but. Um, you know, the main problem with it is just that it's a time suck, uh, where you get to all go through your papers together and they check every little thing that you did, or, uh, I don't know, maybe in this case, they, they go to your tax preparer and say, you know, how has this been the same every, every single year? And, uh, it's their problem, but you know, that's, that's the real problem with auditing. It's not friendly and it takes a lot of time because they check everything, but, um, you know, it's not it's not like being dragged away in handcuffs. <laughs> is there why do you get a tax break 
if you donate to a nonprofit? Is there evidence that people would not donate to nonprofits if there wasn't a tax break? They already do. Um, you know, uh, most people have actually not been eligible to take that deduction since it was invented. And especially after the 2017 tax law, uh, only about 11% of uh, tax returns filed the schedule where you can take that deduction. So most people, uh, you know, more than half of Americans donate to charity and uh, they're getting no tax benefit from doing it. So people will definitely make charitable donations even without that rule. Um, you know, but the the reason why it, it it does seem to be the case that when we do let people take that deduction and when they know they're going to be eligible for it, then they do tend to give more, especially the, um, you know, like high income philanthropists who, you know, can plan out to get the biggest bang for buck by making, uh, very large donations to their favorite causes, the, right. you know, Bill a- Gates after- Foundation and so on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. After Jeff Bezos and the like have uh, you know raped and pillaged the financially uh, the uh, the land, then they can go. You know, aren't <laughs> I'm I gonna give generous? a little back? Yeah. <laughs> Why not just make a tax that pays for nonprofits? Well, we have that too. Uh, a lot of organizations have their biggest source of funding comes from government grants or government contracts, so they're already doing that as well. I, I, to me, the biggest thing that we get out of these, uh, this donation, the donation deduction is that people will donate to stuff that for whatever reason, we don't want to spend tax money on. Uh, so, you know, uh, for church and state reasons, churches are obviously a big example, but then there's things like Bill Gates, uh, has spent a lot of money on vaccine research, even, you know, way back when, uh, you know, the U S federal government wasn't interested in it. Uh, before it was shelters. Cool. Yeah. Before it was, before it was cool. Uh, you know, when he was just the windows guy, uh, and then he was also doing vaccines and everyone was like, yeah, Bill Gates, vaccines, computer virus. Okay. Um, but like animal shelters too. get most of their, most of them get most of their donations from, uh, people giving voluntarily, not from the, uh, animal control bureau. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, yeah. there, there's there are things that people really care about that get done because of charitable giving that I don't think, uh, well, maybe it is possible, but right now it's not the case that we spend public money on it. So, uh, you know, it's it's a nice mix and match. There's some of the stuff that gets paid for by tax dollars given to the nonprofit sector, and then there's you know stuff that we we do out of our own pockets. Yeah, we do out of our own pockets. Yeah. Well. Dr. Duquette, thanks for uh, auditing our knowledge of taxes. It seems like it was not very deep, ours knowledge, that is. Uh, but now we're going to take our new information and run it through the old Poundstonator. Paula. How's Ben Christopher still? Taxes can be dry, so let's drench what the Poundstonator spits out in a little background music. Thanks. And now we return to the Discovery Channel in-depth documentary on taxes. Of course, the colonists objected to the levying of a tax on their beloved tea. We don't want to pay for tea tax. We want to fill out long forms with schedules. That's right, with schedules. What's a schedule? You know, like, I can't pay that tax right now. It doesn't fit in my schedule. (laughs) We'll be back after this message. <laughs> Won't you give to adopt an IRS auditor? For less than the price of a cup of coffee a day, 
you can give less than a cup of coffee a day to an IRS auditor. A one-time contribution of $20 can provide a much-needed necktie or scarf for an IRS auditor. Do they even know it's tax season? (laughs) (laughs) He is an economist at USC's Saul Price School of Public Policy. Dr. Gugget, thanks so much for returning to our podcast. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks, Nicholas. You were great. Thank Thank you so much. (laughs) That was fun. Coming up, questions. We're sharing our favorite nuggets of wisdom, including the Pythagorean maxim. That's coming up right after this. Fun fact, approximately 10 to 20% of U.S. power outages are caused by squirrels, who apparently still haven't learned not to use a hairdryer while the AC is running. (laughs) Hey, Paula, you might have noticed, I think our listeners have too, that we are fond of quotations around here. We use them between segments of the show because, as Brendan Behan wrote, a quotation is like a rifle in the hands of an infantryman. It speaks with authority. So let's get some authority going here. We have asked our crew to bring in their favorite quotations. I got one. What do you got, Paula? Break it out. We need a good name for this segment, too, like Quote Party or something. Yeah, Bonnie will write a a theme song, no doubt. Um, uh... Lose your leg, lose your leg, lose your leg. <laughs> Who um, said that? Who said that? <laughs> Who said that? Who said that? Who said that? I guarantee you, Tony is Googling leg, leg quotes. You know, I'm she right is. I'm not Googling right now. I'm just sitting here quietly listening. No, you know Oof. what? Right after Adam's fun fact, Tony was Googling squirrels. I know she was. I know she was. I felt it. <laughs> Um, All right, so this is a a very familiar quote, uh, which is, uh, of course, Ben Franklin said, uh, a penny saved is a penny earned. Uh, But let me just say this about that. That will really fuck up your books. Right, because you're counting that 20 twice, and then the auditors are going to find that and be like, sir, you, you earned a penny and saved a penny, but there's still only one penny. Exactly. It's, 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 you know, you got nothing you see, in a sea of W-2s that way. I think, I think that's a really good point. I mean, look, we should probably look back at Ben Franklin's books and see if he was declaring two pennies for every penny he got. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Guy died penniless, by the way. <laughs> well, he never saved him. He just said he should. Uh, that, yeah. Well, that's, that's no, he a said, lovely, He said, do as I say, quote. not as I do. That was, that was his, too. That was also his quote, too? Well, yeah. um, I have I have a quote that's also um, kind of a familiar one, but it is my favorite quote about literacy. Are you ready for it? Here yeah. it comes. Outside of a dog, a book is man's best friend. Inside of a dog, it's too dark to read. <laughs> <laughs> that's Groucho Marx. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah, and he's right about that. 
He is absolutely right about it. He was he was a yeah. passionate advocate for literacy as well as dogs. Yeah. All and right. Mrs. Who's the woman I always liked? Oh, come on, help me out. Margaret. Margaret Dumont. Dumont. Yeah. Margaret just Dumont. Just the best. Oh my gosh, I love her. Oh, Mr. Quackenbush. Um. <laughs> all right. <laughs> oh wow. Maybe she can call sometime. She's dead. <laughs> I had. <laughs> Bonnie just stepped out of the show and put on her producer hat. Bonnie, oh, you come on back God. in here. <laughs> so let's get the quotes of popping. Bonnie, okay. ed- edify us. Well, I have two. One of them is from Dorothy Parker. Of course Dorothy you do. Parker. Of okay. course I one do. Of- <laughs> uh, one of them's from Dorothy Parker, and it is the cure for boredom is curiosity. There is no cure for curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I'll buy that. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a cure for curiosity, Tony. Why don't you tell us what it is? (laughs) (laughs) Man, when you Google what is the cure for curiosity, it just brings up the Dorothy Parker quote. Oh, it does. How See, do you know that? I didn't really think you were Googling that. <laughs> well, since you had already made was. fun of me for doing it, I might as oh. well just do it. It's like if I why don't you, you why don't you Google me of killing sh- someone? Why don't you Google? <laughs> sh- <laughs> Tony, that's like saying that's like saying, well, since you just accused me of having a heroin problem, I see no reason not to shoot up right now in my eyeball. Yeah, yeah, I you know. Are the impeachment hearings over? Because Trump is really missing uh, uh, not having Tony on his team. Uh, oh, my it's gosh. It's a fabulous, fabulous legal it. argument you just, fabulous <laughs> legal argument you just made. They were going to do it anyways. They were going to do it anyways. Tony and Anita Hall. <laughs> um, Tony, as long as we've got you under the microscope, what's your quote? No, wait. I have my other one. I have a second oh, one. I oh, forgot. I, I thought we were okay. all over that as a nation, but okay, Bonnie. No, 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 no. Here right, we go. Get ready to Google, Tony. Get ready. Okay, get set. Here we go. Optimism. One of the most important qualities of a good leader is optimism, a pragmatic enthusiasm for what can be achieved. Even in the face of difficult choices and less than ideal outcomes, an optimistic leader does not yield to pessimism. Simply put, People are not motivated or energized by pessimists. And that is from a guy named Bob Iger, who Paula and I actually know, who wrote a book called The Right of a Lifetime, Lessons Learned from 15 Years as CEO of the Walt Disney Company. I think he's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But I think he has a really good point about the optimism. I think he could have said it a little shorter, but yes, he has a very yeah, good point. Yeah, it's a long quote. It is a long quote, but the optimism, if you have a negative leader, that's really an uphill battle. So so this is yep. I- Eisner? Yeah, Bob Iger. Oh, Bob Iger. Not Eisner. Now, what I would suggest, Bob, if you're listening, um, or, or <laughs> Bob's family, I would go back in there and just go with the sentence... Leaders should be optimistic because no one wants to follow a negative leader. Because that, 
Because your entire quote says nothing more than that. I I hate to sound pessimistic, but I don't like the, the I don't I don't like the prospects for Iger's book's future. All right, wait. How about this, Bob? Bob Iger and family. Uh, how about this? Few footprints follow the trail of a whiner. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's that's both was, sagacious. I, that's both sagacious, like mine, but also colorful, and there's a metaphor involved. And Paula, you are a better writer than Bob Iger. Uh, well, I don't know about that. Ah, uh, nope, you are. Uh, no, you are. Bob Iger may have had a writer go with him on this journey. Well, that but... guy deserves to be fired because this is just <laughs> so overly it took two wordy. writers to come up with that. Really? Um, no, I. Isn't there an analogy here for you guys? Like, say, when you're doing improv or acting if you have somebody working with you who goes like well that isn't good and you know blah 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 and they squelch an idea right away isn't that kind of like a killer in terms of moving forward yes negative no i agree that negative i agree with the quote bonnie if you're saying negative people don't make as good uh leaders as optimists um i think in general that's true i think the captain of the titanic maybe should have been more realistic (laughs) <laughs> personally i think i think there's a time when being optimistic about the the you know how your boat's going to be doing over the next couple of hours it might, it might not be the best thing but uh well okay but yeah you know what though um a lot of what the captain of the titanic said didn't get written down um he did have he had a tremendous amount of optimism where other people wouldn't have uh, for example, yeah, this is a quote from him. He said, I think we can live down here. <laughs> hey, I found another one. I just Googled him. I found another one. He said, he said, um, people, you might notice it's getting a little humid in here. <laughs> no, he this, said, this really is it optimistic. Me? Is it yeah. me or is it getting here? Um, stop Googling. <laughs> Not googling. That's yeah, not a real boy. <laughs> I was yeah, joking. He didn't really googling. say that. What are you doing? He did. Oh, here's no, a, he did. here's another great quote from the uh, captain of the Titanic: "Free salt water, everybody." <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Yeah, yeah. See, Google is a great tool. If only we had some dough, we could make pretzels. That was. <laughs> we could put we could put it on a stick. <laughs> And fry it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, wait, Tony. Tony, did you do a quote? Did you give us a quote yet? No, not not yet. Bonnie had two. Oh yeah. Oh, oh, crucify me for that. Oh, I was being pessimistic. (laughs) Well, that wasn't really a crucifixion. What what happened to Bob Iger's champion of positivity? Go ahead, Tony. Good for you, Tony. I think Bob oh, Iger put it best when he said, I don't even know what's happening. I think Bob Iger put it best when he said, this is the part of the show where we're going to ask Tony Anita Hull to recite her quote. We've prepared this in advance, and this is the part where we do that. And so with very little further job, ado, Adam. I would like to ask Tony Anita Hull to offer up that aforementioned quote. 
Good work, Adam. <laughs> Bob paid by the word Iger. Um, <laughs> um, all right, Tony, go ahead. Um, so I chose a quote from Anita Luz, who wrote Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. She's one of my favorite writers in the world what and she's an she also is a a a screenwriter in the silent film area era and very successful i've been published writing about her so you know take that wow um so um it is for so the human heart behaves through all its ups downs tears laughter and harrowing surprises well my friend that is life and art as they've got to be either in or out of the show shops Show shops. <laughs> That's the a show shop. To say. Show shops. Show shock. <laughs> show shops. What a great Either quote. Either in or out of the show shops. That was a great quote. Good for yeah. you, Tony. I feel like you're patronizing me, Bonnie, and I, I don't, don't appreciate I don't. it. <laughs> Well, look, no, Bonnie, Bonnie's, Bonnie's not one to talk because she, she's the one who uh, quoted Bob Iger reading the phone book. So. <laughs> it's <laughs> one of my favorite She doesn't have a leg to stand on. But, Can you say it again? I, I don't think I followed it. I, I don't think I yeah, followed it. Yeah, what's a show shop? Wait a minute. I don't think I did. What's no, a show I did. shop? It was great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm not talking to any of you right now, so you can just move I, on. No, I'm asking you to say it again. I just have a- Amy Klobuchar. Amy Klobuchar, how was Tony's quote? It was really good. She's a really good American. I'm so proud of her. <laughs> Do you know that um, just recently Joe Biden said to Amy Klobuchar, I feel like you're patronizing me and I don't like it. <laughs> um, all right, um, if Tony's not going to offer it up What's a show shop? What's a show shop? Uh, no, uh, never mind. You know, it just cut everything. <laughs> Tony, I think we She's just didn't hear you. Is, it's, She's <laughs> we're literally us. saying we just didn't hear you. <laughs> I don't know what a show. <laughs> I'm crying. <laughs> well, stop crying and tell us what a show shock is. No, it's a show shop. A show, show shop? shop. Show shop. Shop with a B. Shop. Show. She se- she sells show shops. shops by the seashore. Show shop. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> no wonder she wrote silent films. Oh my god, no, she wrote okay, you know what? Everyone can shove it. <laughs> oh, you were saying shove it, not show shop. <laughs> show shops. What no, is she a wrote show the women. Shop. <laughs> is it a sexual term? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't deal with it. I can't right now. It's too much. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was really okay, good, wait. Tony. That was really good. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> oh, 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 okay. Wait. Does does a show shop 
suck some sort of unwanted substance out of a baby? <laughs> you know, you, you know when you Google Show Shop, it takes you to a, a website for riding apparel. That makes sense. Yeah, remember when you bought that expensive shirt for for your daughter? Yeah, the show shirt. Yeah, those you know, are expensive. You can tell that Anita Luz was a writer and not a speaker because, you know, show shop is fine on the page, but boy, try to say it at the end of a quote. Is it really show shop? (laughs) (laughs) We've we've angered Tony, and now she won't tell us what show shop means. That's our punishment. That's it. Her, well, it serves us right. Her lips are sealed. We'll never get it out of her what show shop is. We, that, and you know what? We deserve that. I just want to say, oh, I can't speak for all of us, but I deserve. I hate the quote saying <laughs> I like it. I think it worked out really, really well. Okay, now, um, and, and thus, lacking a theme song for it, we come to the end of our quote quote bonanza tonight. Uh, Paula, Good. what's going on in your Poundstone product <laughs> empire this week? Wow. Um, well, Adam, I don't know if you heard about the, n- the name change on my product empire. Um, it's now Show Shop. Um, <laughs> that actually fits. Oh, yeah. Adam, the mission of Poundstone Industries is to meet the needs of the American people and some Icelandians. The way we are doing that currently is by offering my book, The Totally Unscientific Study of the Search for Human Happiness, in paperback or the audio version, which is on CD. Kirkus Reviews said of it, The concept of a comedian doing a series of stunts to find happiness seems like a pure romp, and there are plenty of great laughs, but that's not the whole story. A deeply revealing memoir in which the pathos doesn't kill the humor delivers more than it promises. I recommend that people get it from their local bookstore, but if your local bookstore doesn't have it, you can find the totally unscientific study of the search for human happiness at the online store at my website at paulpoundstone.com. Or you can get it at the show shop. And if that doesn't give you everything you need to go on, I also make video messages for your friends, loved ones, neighbors, and former bosses at cameo.com slash polypy33. Here's a sample. Hi, Darren. It's me, Paula Poundstone, reaching out to you on behalf of Cindy. You remember Cindy, who gave you 10 years of her working life without you ever giving her a promotion? (laughs) Well, Cindy would like you to know that she hopes that you're all well and that the widgets are flying off the shelves and that she now runs Paramount Studios. That's cameo.com slash Paula P33. Well, that's a, that's a... That sounds great. I'm, I know I'll be going to cameo.com slash Paula P33 to send some messages to try to repair some relationships in my life where people were saying things about each other's quotes that I'm sure they didn't mean. 
All right, subscribe to this podcast. It's free. You get it every week at no charge. Um, and hey, if there's something you want to hear about, something you're curious about that you want to hear us talk about on the show, uh, drop us a line at nobody listens to Paula Poundstone at gmail.com. Once again, that's nobody listens to Paula Poundstone at gmail.com. And that is our show. Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone is hosted by Paula Poundstone and yours truly, Adam Lefelber. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Nicholas Duquette. Yay! And, that, and, and how about that house band trumpeter, Christopher Still? Oh our gosh, sh- yeah, he great. was great. Our show is produced by Paula Poundstone, Adam Felber, Bonnie Burns, Ken Lezebnik, and Tony Nita Hull. Mixing by Michael Hoagie, Starburns Production by Land Romo. Transcription services for the show provided by Transcribe Me, a premier internationally used transcription service. Use code Paula Poundstone when placing your order at transcribeme.com to receive an expedited service. That's our show for tonight. Won't somebody please listen to me? Didn't you mean to say that's our show shop for tonight? Won't somebody please listen to me? Yeah. What is show shop? And why is Tony guarding it so so carefully? I don't I think she felt um she felt like there was some pressure coming on her from Bonnie Burns and so we were never gonna get that quote again. And I'll be damned if I'll Google it. Show shop. Show shop. Remember that song One Tin Soldier? Yes. And then they turned over they turned over like a thing and and uh, show shop was all it said. Do you remember that? Yeah. All it said on the bottom was show shop. I had a friend who um his one entire act that he did was seeing how many marshmallows he could get into his mouth while playing one tin soldier. Oh my gosh. I would watch that. Maybe it's show stock. I think it was show shop. Shop. <laughs> <laughs> what was the rest Doesn't of it make about? Any sense. <laughs> Boy, we poked that beehive. Sleep, and just from her sleep, she's show shop. <laughs> she sat bolt upright in bed and yelled, "Show shop!" <laughs> oh my gosh, she's laughing. Anita Luz is looking down from heaven right now. She's <laughs> saying to Tony, "Tell them what show shop is." <laughs> I googled Anita Lou's quote show shop and nothing came up. <laughs> there was something about us. What? It's not show shop? No, you're not going to find it on the internet. Oh, she's not going to let you find it. <laughs> oh. There was something about when your play's not successful. Something about a play not successful, what to hawk. I will not have you reading me to lose, lose any of those quotes <laughs> from the internet. Yeah, right. 
Scarpins Avenue, a podcast, <clears throat> a podcast network.